This is Ariva Martin in real time. And today we are breaking down the Georgia indictment of Donald Trump and 18 co-conspirators, uh, co-defendants that have also been charged by the Fulton County District Attorney, Fannie Willis. And we're also helping everyday people, everyone that has not gone to law school and is not familiar with the intricate workings of the criminal justice system, understand what this indictment means and how it is different than the indictment against Donald Trump by the uh, special counsel, Jack Smith, in a New York federal district court. And joining me to help us make sense of the fourth indictment of Donald Trump is Jennifer Todd. She's a professor of law at uh, the Western New England University School of Law and Karen Morrison, Associate Professor of Law at Georgia State University. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And thank you, Karen, for being here today, You know, giving us your brilliance, lending us your expertise as we try to make sense of these indictments. I want to start with you, Professor Morrison. You sure. in the state of Georgia, you are a law professor. So you teach, I'm certain, uh, or you have been exposed in a very intimate way to Georgia's RICO statute. We've been hearing a lot about this RICO statute, how it is different than the uh, RICO statute that perhaps Rudy Giuliani used when he was a when he was a prosecutor in the state of New York, and even how it might be different than the federal RICO statute. So uh, give us the simplest definition of this Georgia RICO statute and how it is being used in this case against Donald Trump and the other 18 co-defendants. Okay, thanks, Ariva. Actually, if you don't mind, I'd rather start with the federal RICO statute. And I think it'll be easier to because that was the original okay. RICO statute. So 1970, the mob is basically running everything in New York and Philadelphia and all the other cities. And so the federal government is trying really hard to prosecute the, the different mob families, but they're having a lot of trouble. All they've got is antitrust law. So that's not really helpful. So in 1970, as part of the Organized Crime Control Act, they passed a law which um, included a statute called the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. So, well, not act really, but Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, RICO. Um, and that enabled um, federal prosecutors to use these new, incredibly powerful prosecutorial tools to be able to round up large numbers of people connected in all different ways, maybe not formal ways, um, who are all working in service of the same goal. So for the mob families, they needed to explain that there was like, say, a Bonanno family or a Gambino family, and that what they were trying to do was to maintain control over certain neighborhoods, enrich themselves, intimidate um, foes, basically advance the, the interests of that family. So that so the group of people all together trying to achieve the same goal was um, termed an enterprise. So part of the RICO statute is in the federal RICO statute is um, defining and proving that there is actually, in fact, an enterprise. Then you need to show that there is a pattern of racketeering activity. Racketeering by itself, it doesn't really mean anything. What it means is certain specified federal crimes, typically serious felonies, um, that um, two or more of them constitute a pattern. 
So if the enterprise or anybody in the enterprise, any of the players um, is, is doing something, so let's, say, let's stick with the mob again, easy to follow. Um, let's say one family kills two people from the other family, they extort some people here, they are running a numbers racket there. All those things could be racketeering acts. And when you put them all together, you get a pattern of racketeering activity. And then that's what the uh, the uh, prosecutor would prove. So um, I want to make clear, when Rudy Giuliani was in New York, he was the um, US, United States attorney for the Southern District of New York. So he was using the federal RICO statute. So most of the RICO cases you've heard of are federal um, RICO cases. Um, the Georgia RICO statute, I think, came into being approximately 10 years later, like in the 80s. Um, most of the states followed, and I think every state now has its own baby RICO. Um, and, and they can differ some, but they basically, in large part, follow the federal model. Georgia has um, two main differences, one which doesn't matter at all for this particular case, and one which is um, a little more significant. So the one that doesn't matter at all is apparently in Georgia, you can bring a RICO case without having to show an enterprise, a single person um, committing different enumerated crimes over a period of time um, can be found guilty of racketeering. Um, obviously, that's completely not the issue here. So who cares, honestly? Um, because here we have uh, a great, you know, a sort of a great enterprise. You've got 19 people who are indicted, not to mention 30 unnamed co-conspirators. So you've got 50 people. Um, so clearly you have an enterprise. So that, that's not the problem. The other thing is um, the Georgia RICO statute is um, somewhat broader than the federal statute. Not to say that federal RICO is narrow. It is not. It has a laundry list of federal predicate crimes that is so long, I get bored every time I try to read all the way through them because it's it's everything. I mean, obviously, all the things you'd expect, arson, mail fraud, forgery, kidnapping. And can uh, I just jump robbery. in and say, sorry, jump. there are the federal crimes, but there are also state crimes. Yeah, I was getting to that. Beginning. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I know I'm. Um, but I'm going slowly because I'm trying to explain it to, to people who are unfamiliar with the thing. So um, so what I'm trying to say is, so the federal, the federal, federal RICO um, lists potential racketeering acts as a number of listed federal crimes, plus a short list of state crimes. Those state crimes tend to be very serious. It is things like murder, um, kidnapping, uh, rape, um, I, I don't even know, you know, like serious arson, mm -hmm. extortion, serious crimes like that. But it's not a huge list. It's maybe 10 or so. Um, Georgia RICO includes everything in the federal RICO statute. So basically any of the racketeering right. acts that could that could count under federal RICO count as racketeering acts under the state RICO. Plus, it has a list of 42 state crimes that can be used as predicate acts. Now that doesn't mean it has 42 more than um, the federal one because some of them are things like murder and robbery and, and kidnapping mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But it does have a number of, of ones, some of which Fannie Willis used in her indictment, including things like false statements to um, public officials, 
impersonating public officials um, and, and things like that. And those are fairly, those are quite broad and those do go beyond what is typically available under the RICO statute. And now I turn it over. <laughs> no, no, great explanation. Thank you for that. So so what I want you to, to tell us, Professor Taub, is uh, Professor Morrison used the word predicate crimes and it just rolled off her tongue as if everybody knows what a predicate crime is. And we've heard it a lot. And we've also heard about overt acts and in this indictment against Trump and the other 18, there are a number of predicate crimes listed and then over a hundred of so-called overt acts. And some of the Republican pundits have been making jokes about, oh my God, sending a tweet or making an appointment now is criminal. So please explain to us the difference between predicate crimes or acts and then these overt acts that are listed in this indictment. So first of all, I want to say what a great explanation that was. And I want to invite Professor Morrison to my white collar crime class this semester to set us up on RICO. Um, okay, so the uh, just as a reminder, the Predicate Act just taught it just means the racketeering basis for for the indictment. Right. Um, so uh, the, the, the overt act is the reason why those are in this indictment is because it's alleging a conspiracy. Now. I'm going to step back and help your, you know, 92 year old grandmother or aunt, I mean, or a fifth grader understand this. One of the other reasons that both the federal government and Georgia wanted a RICO statute to get at those mob families that were doing a bunch of stuff is because um, one of the laws that was available wasn't enough, and that was conspiracy. Right. So and I'm going to build from here because this is where the concept of overt act comes from. A conspiracy is a, an agreement between two or more people to commit uh, a crime. And under federal and being very general here, but under federal law, there's two types of conspiracies. There's a conspiracy, what's called to defraud the federal government. That's sort of very general. But then there's a conspiracy to break federal law. And then you've got to point to any federal law. It could be the Constitution. It could be a statute. And for example, under federal law, in addition to showing proof that anyone who you say is in the conspiracy entered into that agreement to, you know, to um, to break the law for a particular object, illegal, you know, un unlawful objective, you mm -hmm. have to also show that they committed an act in furtherance of that objective. And let me tell you why. You can go to jail for conspiracy if, even if you never um, take that illegal action. So Karen and I, or Professor Morrison and I, if we wanted to enter into conspiracy to, let's say, rob a federal bank, and after the show we met and we said, you know, hey, I'm headed down to Atlanta and there is a bank right around the corner from your law school, uh, let's go hold it up. And she goes, that's a fantastic idea. And I say, okay, I just need to buy my plane ticket. And if I go online and buy my plane ticket, and they, and somehow the feds were listening in on us, both she and I um, could be credibly in, you know, indicted for conspiracy to rob a federal bank. Why? Mm -hmm. Because we had an agreement. There was more than one of us that we had, a, you know, the unlawful objective that was federal law to violate to uh, to rob a bank. And I took an act in furtherance. What was that? Buying a plane ticket. Right. My act in furtherance is considered an overt act. Mm. Now, so that's why there are a right. hundred overt acts that 
the defendants took as yes. they were furthering the scheme, the conspiracy to overturn the legitimate election of Joe Biden in the state of Georgia. Yes, but 100% true. But the reason why they couldn't just use a regular conspiracy statute at the state level, sometimes they don't, and they couldn't use the federal conspiracy statute, is because a RICO conspiracy, you don't need to have um, in those agreements. So in other words, when you look at this indictment and you see there's 19, including Donald Trump, that are alleged to be part of this RICO conspiracy, you don't you don't see in this indictment that they sat in a room and agreed together to be part mm -hmm. of a RICO enterprise. Right. Okay. So RICO kind of allows you to stitch together, um, you know, these various predicate crimes and say there's a pattern of criming and stitch together conspiracy, but take out the tough stuff to prove. Right. The agreement. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, Professor Morrison. So uh, Mark Meadows, chief of staff for Donald Trump, filed right out the gate a motion oh, yeah. to uh, remove, which means take the case out of the state court and have it now heard in federal court. So we know uh, if he is successful, that Georgia RICO statute still applies. So the case will still be tried under Georgia state law, but he's, I guess the traditional wisdom is that somehow in federal court, he's going to get a judge perhaps that was appointed by a Republican, although the state judge in this case was uh, is a Republican judge. Uh, what, what's his calculation? Does he think he's going to get a, a, a more conservative jury pool? Why does he want to be in federal court instead of state court? Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of it is um, to get out of Fulton County which, um, you know, as you know, is a very diverse county. There's, um, you know, I think it's 50-50 black-white or something like that. So um, it's also a highly democratic county. So it went overwhelmingly for Joe Biden at the election. And I think Mark Meadows figures that if he, go, if he were to move his case to federal court, which doesn't turn his case, like you say, it does not turn the case into a federal case, bizarrely. It's literally a state case that's happening in federal court. Um, he will just have a friendlier jury because he's going to be in the Northern District of Georgia, which is, you know, yes, it includes Atlanta and, and the, the different counties here, but it also includes a lot of deep red counties further north. And so there's like more of a mix and potentially um, a friendlier audience. So I think that's a, a big thing for in his calculation. So Professor Todd, with Mark Meadows, Moving his case to federal court, one thing Fannie Willis said at her press conference when she announced the indictments was that she wanted to try all 19 of these defendants together. So if Mark Meadows is successful and we know that removal statutes are pretty liberal and broad, so chances are he will end up in federal court. If he does, what does that mean for her trying the cases together? Because now she has one case in federal court. And presumably the 18 are still in state court, although some may try to move over to federal court too. But is it conceivable that half of her cases are going to be tried in federal court and uh, the other half in state court? Can that happen? So um, such a good question. And I, ha I, I don't know that I, that I read his, um, his notice of removal, but I may, my understanding is he's also trying to use the Westfall Act, which is a federal statute that says when you're suing, um, well, that would be that would be under civil law. So maybe that wouldn't wouldn't help. But my understanding is he's trying to argue he was acting in the course of his employment when he was 
doing this unlawful stuff. I was just making phone calls. I was just setting up meetings. And if you are acting in the course of your federal employment, then it would make sense for the case to be in federal court in the jurisdiction where he was, which would have been in D.C. Um, I'm not sure that he is going to succeed, but she may end up having to have some of the pieces of this case broken off. Um, you know, we just shall see. I think that I have a feeling that he's not going to succeed. I'm mostly curious whether Donald Trump is going to take the same step. I think he's going to try as well. I don't think I'm, I'm more certain that he won't succeed than Mark Meadows won't. When we come forward, I want to talk about this removal statute because, uh, Professor Tab, you said he could, in theory, have the case removed to the uh, jurisdiction where the acts occurred. So that raises the question about whether they get removed to a federal court in D.C. or just this northern district court in Georgia. Uh, also, what are the chances of finding Willis winning such a big case involving 19 uh, defendants and why 19 in the state court case in Georgia, but only one charged in the federal case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Uh, more on the anatomy of the indictment against Donald Trump when we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with criminal law experts, Professor Jennifer Taub and Professor Karen Morrison. Professor Top, how is the indictment in Fulton County, this fourth indictment against Trump and the 18 co-defendants, how is it different than the federal indictment that was brought by special counsel Jack Smith in Washington, D.C.? So I think there are a number of differences, and I guess I'll just kind of tick them off in a list. The biggest difference is in the federal indictment uh, that was uh, unsealed August 1st, um, that indictment only names Donald Trump as a defendant, and there are six uh, unnamed co-conspirators in that, uh, as compared to Georgia, which we've talked about a bit, where in addition to Donald Trump, uh, we we have 18 other actually named defendants and something like 30 unnamed uh, co-conspirators. So in terms of um, you know, that makes it's a huge difference. Um, not just people have talked a lot about um, how to manage that, but in terms of the shock and awe of it, you know, to to indict that many people and to suggest that there are 50 plus people all involved in a criminal enterprise is is kind of a completely different thing. The second way they're different um is that uh, in federal courts, there will, you know, there's no obligation and no tradition of having t cameras in the courtroom. So with when when Donald Trump was arraigned in the both of the Jack Smith cases, but in particular the January 6th related one, we didn't get to see inside uh, the courtroom. We will be seeing Donald Trump and other defendants with cameras, uh, possibly, I don't know if the camera will actually be in the sheriff's office when he gets a booking photo, which will also be new. Um, but when you come to state court and it's not federal court, people are really treated equally uh, when you get processed. So that's, that's a second way in terms of public exposure. The third thing is um, the the very different types of statutes were used in the federal in the federal case. We had basically three major statutes used. One dealt one is one that I alluded to earlier, which is is a conspiracy to defraud the United States, um, which does not mean fraud in the sense of money or property, but it means in the sense of trying to beat you, um, deceit, 
um, or trickery or uh, some other kind of dishonesty to defeat or interfere with a lawful function of government, in this case, counting of votes in an election. Um, the second statute that was used is is one of the obstruction statutes related to interfering with, you know, a, a, a um, related to trying to interfere with or obstruct an official proceeding. And then the third statute was a statute about um, trying to deprive people of their rights, meaning you and I, of our right to have our vote counted. So um, that's and specifically me as a Georgia voter. Yes, you specifically <laughs> yeah. as a Georgia voter voter. And so it's different in that way. And I think the final way is um, what Fawny Willis was able to do here is something breathtaking. It was, you know, this is an, an impeccably um, you know, manicured indictment that gives us a timeline from the 2020 election through two years showing by showing those overt acts and furtherance, showing what was done, not abstractly to our votes, but specifically to people along the way. And this indictment to me vindicates and centers um, centers someone uh, that we have, we have heard of before, Ruby Freeman, a poll worker and her daughter, who were themselves victims right. and their lives destroyed uh, by people who are defendants in this case. And, and to me, having included them is very heartwarming because it feels like justice will be served for them. Um, but also they represent, they are stand-ins for all of us being victims. So to me, that final way that these are different is this is, you know, there are a lot of facts laid out, a lot of details, and a lot of defendants in this case. And given that number of defendants, the 19 uh, that have been indicted and the 30 unnamed, who obviously they could be indicted at any moment, uh, Professor Morrison, a lot of criticism of Fonnie Willis's statement that she wants to get to trial now looks like she filed a motion to get to trial in March of 2024 and that she wants to try these individuals together. Uh, we know Fonnie has uh, used RICO statutes uh, to prosecute teachers in a, a cheating scandal. She's successfully. used successfully lots of convictions in that case. And she's in the midst of a RICO case against uh, some uh, gang members that she's uh, claiming are also involved in a criminal enterprise that have committed some uh, pretty serious crimes. What What's your take on, will this case go in March? And can she keep these 19 individuals together? Or is there likely to be a lot of plea deals, particularly with some of those lower level people who uh, didn't have as much involvement as some of the key players? So um, 100% this, the case is not going in March. Um, so we know, I mean, that's just a certainty. There's absolutely no way. Um, there's also absolutely no way that we're going to still end up with um, 19 defendants six months from now, because like you say, people are going to peel off one way or another. Maybe some people will get their cases removed. I'm kind of in agreement with Jennifer that I doubt it. I also hope not, <laughs> but um, but that's maybe a possibility. Uh, definitely some people will plead out. Um and some people may cooperate. Right. Uh, and some people may move to sever as well. So um, there's there's going to be a lot of activity. There's this is going to be ridiculously motion heavy, yeah. um, you know. And so. So that alone is going to prevent us from doing it in six months. What I like about so what, what she said is just purely aspirational. It's it's I feel like it was more like a statement of intent. Mm -hmm. Like I am ready to go. Here's my schedule, you right. know, 
here's what I want to see the, the arraignments. I'm calling for a trial at this point. Um, she's basically, she's, she's showing that she is not playing. Like she's, she's here to get this done. And I, I completely agree with Jennifer's description of the indictment. It's, I was so impressed, like being in Atlanta, you know, I've had to check in with different local news stations fairly frequently. Like, why do you think it's taking so long? And I would always say, because it's really complicated. Like there's, there's a lot of, there's an enormous amount of facts here and people and testimony. And this is not a fast thing. No, I don't think she's taking too long. Um, but it it is so thorough and so detailed in a clear way. Um, I could that's totally with Jennifer. It's it's a really, you know, if, if for baby prosecutor school, it would be a kind of a master class. Well, it is 97, 98 pages. So yes, it took long because you know, like you said, very involved investigation. Looking forward, uh, Professor Top, I want to ask you uh, about what happens if this expansive case with lots of motions and lots of moving parts that will be delayed, as Professor Morrison said, well beyond six months, could be delayed beyond the election. And God forbid some kind of way Donald Trump gets elected in 2024. We know he cannot pardon himself. He has no jurisdiction over uh, a Georgia state case. We know Georgia has some pretty uh, strict rules about who gets pardoned. It doesn't rest with the governors, a, a, a whole committee, uh, computation, commutation of sentences, all again, uh, you know, through a very rigorous process in Georgia. But can we put a sitting president, can we make him show up at a state trial, criminal trial. You'll give us the answer to that when we come forward right here in KBLA Talk 1580. Professor Taub, since Donald Trump has been so effective at eluding uh, responsibility, accountability for his actions, many people, despite the four indictments, despite the 91 criminal charges against him, don't believe he is ever going to face accountability, i.e. have to sit through a criminal trial or uh, you know, serve any jail time. If he does win the election in 2024 by some stroke of luck or magic, and this case in Georgia has not gone to trial because the 19 defendants and the motions and all of the delays that happened in courtrooms, would Donald Trump be forced? Could the Georgia district attorney of the Georgia court system forced him to sit through a criminal trial. And then I guess the second part of that question would be incarceration if he is convicted. I love that kind of question because I can hypothesize without being wrong because there's no answer. There's no known answer yet. But what I can say is um, he would, based on his past behavior, do anything in his power and I mean power beyond his legal authority to try to stall, delay, or get the case dismissed against him. And I think that it could happen uh, similarly to what happened before. Uh, remember, he got on the phone, and we see in the indictment, not just one time, but several times many of his emissaries did, to put pressure on the leaders in Georgia, including Secretary of State Raffensperger, to change the election outcome. So he is going to right now we know there's a there's state law in Georgia that has a commission, not the governor, deciding on pardons and commutations of sentences and that you actually have to serve time before any kind of pardon or commutation. However, that's the law today. 
uh, that law could change. Now, the nice thing about Georgia is the, you know, the current governor um, is uh, Brian Kemp has stood up to Donald Trump so far. If he's reelected, he might continue to stand up to him. But there's no telling what a president of the United States can do to hurt a state to deprive it, even unlawfully. Remember, mm-hmm. you know, the whole quid pro quo with Ukraine, there's no quid pro quo, there's no quid pro quo. Well, there was. I mean, I would not put anything past this man not right. to, to serve time. Also, getting him, hauling him into a courtroom, if his Secret Service refuses to let him go, this would be a showdown. And by the way, this would be the least of our problems if he wins again. Yeah, let me ask you this, uh, Professor uh, Morrison, you're in Georgia. Everyone says that uh, Judge Tanya Chutkin, the judge that's overseeing the D.C. case that's been filed by the special counsel, she hauled the parties into court to say you must stop trying to (laughs) influence the jury. And they said if he was anyone other than Trump, he would be in jail. What is the state court judge in Georgia (laughs) going to do? I would I would imagine that they're going to do the same things and with the same result. Are you okay? Okay. Um, yeah. So um, obviously, the the regular defendants are not supposed to be making comments about the prosecuting attorney. They're not supposed to um, be, you know, talking about, you know, the fact that this is this is all a farce and and it's wrong and people should be protesting it or there should be a civil war or something like that. Um, so, you know, he will be warned. He will not heed the, the instructions because we know him, like it's, there's no, there's no mystery here. Um, and I think there's probably just going to be like a, a, a round, a round a rosy where he's going to do stuff. He'll get, they, he'll, he'll be asked to come into court. He'll be chastised. He's, you know, his lawyers will be like, you won't do it anymore, your honor. Um, he'll go back out. He'll do it again. You know, so it's going to be like this for <laughs> I think we'll be kind of stuck in a in a kind of groundhog day of. Uh, Is there uh, any scenario where <coughs> where he is held in contempt of court? I I I just can't see it. I I just I just can't see it. Like yes, of course, there's there's many scenarios in which he, he should be held in contempt of court. And potentially say somebody like Rudy Giuliani might be held in contempt of court or something like that. But I I don't think I just can't imagine a Fulton County judge <laughs> sentencing Donald Trump to, to, to pretrial detention. It's I really don't see it. Professor Taub, uh Fannie Willis says that she is not in communication with Jack Smith. Says she wouldn't even know him if he was standing next to her. Do you anticipate Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis starting to talk, to share information? Because I'm thinking if Jack Smith goes first, he has a lot of the same witnesses that Fonnie Willis is going to have. They have a lot of the same evidence. It overlaps. Isn't there a benefit to the two prosecutors having some communication? Well, I think there's a benefit to some communication, but I also think they've got to be very careful about sharing, you know, protecting the evidence they have. A lot of the evidence um, that Jack Smith has, or at least some of the evidence 
um, that Jack Smith has is, you know, top secret evidence. Some of it, you know, as we know, is um, these in, these interviews that he may not want to, you know, once you let something out of your control, you don't know who else is working on, on something. So, you know, I think they're going to have to, at least their teams are going to have to coordinate at least uh, in some respect. Um, but at this point, um, you know, they're two different jurisdictions. And, um, you know, I know Jack Smith is a special counsel and things are different. But previously, what we saw with Merrick Garland when he didn't have a didn't have a special counsel, states like Michigan referred election interference cases involving the false electors to the federal government, to the DOJ. They ignored it. They took it back and brought their own cases. So I feel like the states want to do what they're going to do. Um, and not be told to, you know, sit down and be quiet um, by the DOJ. President Morrison, Donald Trump yeah. says he's going to reveal to the world oh, his yeah. defenses. <laughs> he's going to tell us why yep. this case is bogus. Everything and, is going to be explained. Yes, and why he's going to win. Mm-hmm. What plausible defenses does Donald Trump have and the other defendants? What do you see them plausibly stating that could get them acquitted? I think they're going to say kind of the types of things they've sort of been hinting at already, which is that, you know, they have a responsibility to ensure the fair, you know, that there was fraud. Basically, they're going to relitigate 2020 all over again. It's going to be exhausting. Um, but, you know, they're going to be saying they had to do it because there was massive fraud. And and you would not believe the number of dead people who were you know, um, voting and stuff like that. So it's, you know, I think everybody has a little bit of fatigue in terms of what everybody's position is, which is why I think it's such a great thing that most likely this trial will be televised, should it ever happen. Because I think that might actually break through the, you know, on the Republican side, the kind of, yeah, 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 another indictment, like what else is new? They, they, it's easy to kind of put them all in a in a big pack and think it's all politically motivated. And then possibly on the left, like, you know, it's it's gotten so hard to take anything that Trump's side says seriously. Um, but given the fact that he is presumed innocent, maybe, you know, there's certain things that they're saying that should be taken more seriously. And that would be more clear when we're actually watching the trial. So I think it would make it more real for everybody. And finally, the last couple of minutes we have, Professor Top. one of the defenses we have heard Trump's lawyer put forward on TV. Uh, we haven't seen that lawyer since he went on that round of television, so I don't think Donald Trump liked what he said. <laughs> but he said First Amendment rights, uh, specific uh, technical violation of the Constitution, and reliance on advice of counsel. So let, let's deal with that advice of counsel. Is that a defense that... Eastman and Giuliani and Sidney Powell had memos that told Donald Trump, this election is fake, it's fraudulent, it's been stolen from you. And he acted on that by calling, making the statements that he made. Is that going to fly? I don't see it as flying because everything has to be shown in the full context. People like Eastman um, specifically said, you know, things like this will never, you know, hold up at the Supreme Court or to Mike Pence, just, you know, this would just be another small violation of the law. So, you know, some some documents can be documents that they were putting forward to position things so that he would have sort of plausible deniability. But the things they were really telling him 
several of them made clear that they thought these were untested and unlawful measures. As for someone like Sidney Powell, also a lawyer, he, you know, called her crazy, as did everybody around him. I mean, her stuff was, you know, it was, was crack, you know, Looney Tunes, crack, you know, crackers. It was crazy. Um, and so a kraken actually is what I should also say. Um, and also when you're, when your lawyers giving you advice are also your co-defendants in, um, in, in a case, in a conspiracy to defraud the United States, this is the Jack Smith case. Um, in, in, in those instances, um, you're not really you can't really rely on defensive counsel when counsel was actually you know cooking up these criminal plots with you thank you so much ladies we are out of time thank you so much professor jennifer Taub and professor karen morrison obviously we are going to be talking about this for the next couple of years at the yeah. very least <laughs> and i'll be calling on you for your expertise uh this case is not going anyway anywhere we're going to continue oh. to track it and we'll be there on August 25th, bringing you what happens once uh, Trump and the other 18 uh, turn themselves in to uh, stand before a judge on this sprawling indictment.